0: Welcome to The CAP, the College Admissions Process Podcast. I am your host, John Durante, and I am here to introduce you to college admissions representatives and other professionals in the field of college admissions. Our purpose is to serve you, the students, and parents so that you may gain insight straight from the people who ultimately make the decisions. Regardless of whether you apply to a particular school being highlighted in a given episode, you should listen to all of them as each guest will give you tremendous insight and advice on every aspect of the college admissions process, prompting you to come up with your own follow-up questions for when you visit campus or meet with a college admissions representative yourself. Don't forget to visit our website, www.collegeadmissionstalk.com, or the show notes of each episode to access the alphabetical list of all the colleges available with the related audio link to the right of each school. The alphabetical list provides you with on-demand access to all of the episodes so that you may listen whenever you wish. And if you want to receive links to episodes before they are released on the podcast, along with other related resources, please fill out the email opt-in form also available on our website and in the show notes of each episode. Lastly, please email me with any questions or comments at at gmail.com. So are you Ready? Let's talk about it. Welcome to The Cap, the College Admissions Process Podcast. I am your host, John Durante, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you today Robert Franick, who's the editor-in-chief at the Princeton Review. He's also their expert on education and anything and everything (laughs) college-related. I met Rob down at the NACAC conference. That's the National Association for College Admissions Counseling. Now, I saw Rob in action in this booth, which must have been about 2,000 square feet. And there he was talking to private counselors, public school counselors, uh parents and he was such a natural rob i am so happy to have you here today how are you
1: (laughs) oh god i'm really good and it's so good to be with you and thank you for the invitation i'm so grateful
0: well we appreciate that thank you so much rob so let's get right into it rob can you share a bit more about your background and role as the editor-in-chief for the princeton review and how did you get involved in the field of college admissions
1: Oh yeah, I so that's a good question and I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I've been at Princeton Review for 24 and a half years, John. I can't quite wow. believe I got this old. And uh, <laughs> you look you know, great, Rob. You're nice. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, but it's been it's been wonderful. You know, I I graduated college in 1993. I went to a little school in New Jersey called Drew University in Madison, New sure. Jersey. And I loved it. I loved it. Loved it. And then uh, when I was getting out of school, I used to, you know, I used to be a tour guide at uh, at, at Drew all through my four years as an <laughs> undergrad. And one of the admission folks who I befriended said, "Hey, I saw this job in the Chronicle, and it was the paper edition of the Chronicle, right. and it was for a school uh, on Staten Island called Wagner College that was looking sure. for an assistant director of admission. And they said you should plot, you should apply. I <laughs> waited for them to leave the wherever we were, and I ran to I got to, I got a copy of the Chronicle, and I, <laughs> I and I, and I I sent in my, my resume and then the next day I was sitting in Staten Island and they hired me that day. And then I wow. picked up and I think I was there a week later uh, and it was towards the end of the summer. So it was the beginning of the travel season. So I my territory was Staten Island public schools, all the four boroughs of New York City and then Connecticut through Maine. So I was just on the road wow. for from- and I, I loved it, loved it, loved it, you know, just the idea of, and I know you talk to so many admission counselors, admission representatives, um, but to me, I was so suited to my personality, John, that that I liked talking about one school with students, parents, and counselors. I called them the holy trinity in my mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and to sell Staten Island like it was the land of Canaan, which I, I, I grew up in the Bronx, so I mean, I, I didn't really know as much about Staten Island, but I fell for it so hard and it was just such a good good spot for me. And um and then I I moved on from from there. There again in the chronicle a couple uh years later. I, I worked at Wagner for I guess 5 or 6 years and I was in grad school at the time at Pratt. And then uh yeah, and then there was this job at Princeton Review and it said you had to have and was to lead their very small publishing division. You hmm. had to have 5 Not,
0: so small, anymore, right? Not <laughs> so
1: small anymore, right? Not so small anymore, exactly. Yeah. Five to six years college admissions experience. And then the second criteria was you had to have a sense of humor. I'm like, I love these guys. And I <laughs> used to teach for them when I was in college at Drew. I used to teach how to take the SAT as a tutor. But I hadn't th- thought about them in years. And then it turns out that they hired me on the spot. Went there. I interviewed with the guy that started the company, John Katzman, who's still my dear friend. And uh, yeah, so 24 and a half years later, I'm still kicking it.
0: Wow, that's awesome, and they are so lucky to have you, as are we. And by the way, I grew up in Brooklyn, so I know Wagner College very well. We had Anthony at Admissions Reps home Wagner on the podcast, so a big shout-out to Wagner College and all the students there. So, Rob, I know that you meet with so many students and their families. What would you say are the biggest worries for college-bound students and, of course, their parents?
1: Oh, gosh, and these are worries, John, to me, that I would say I want to say this just happened this year or last year. But the truth is that this has been a perennial worry. You know, we've been we've been conducting this survey at the Princeton Review. I'll, I'll steep this in data. We've been hmm. conducting the survey. It's called College Hopes and Worries. We now have 21 years of annual data of college-bound wow. students and their parents. You know, so students from Syosset High School, you know, m- might have filled out the survey. Likely they did. Maybe their parents as well. And we asked them, what are their biggest hopes and their biggest fears around the college process? Biggest fear. Um, and this is now for eight consecutive years running. Is hmm. is fear around assuming too much debt to pay for college, and a wow, very close sure. second is that they, you know, uh, will get into their first choice schools, but families wouldn't wouldn't be able to pay for it. So that specter of cost and navigating the financial aid process and not failing your kids if you if you filled out the FAFSA form incorrectly, but you know the the, the truth is that it is a burden for students and parents. And, and I think that's why you and I hit it off so well, because if you, if you can address things that make students worried, stress their families, you know, give them this, this overall fear around the college process. If you, you can diffuse that and say, I see you and I hear you, let's talk about this intelligently. Let's serve up some granular detail so it doesn't feel so scary. Well, then now you have a willing audience, right? And and now right. fear has subsided and now they're ready to think about the college process with confidence. And to me, uh, that's it. Then, then your audience is, is yours to, to, to help create uh And move them to a better spot.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I speak to so many college reps myself that inevitably they always talk about the importance of talking about the financial piece early and often for the points that you raise, Rob. In other words, you don't want to apply to a college to get accepted and then only to find out that you can't afford it because you didn't have that conversation early. That would be drastic for the parents, for the student, and frankly, for everybody involved. So it really is great advice and I appreciate you sharing the college hopes And worries survey. And I'm not surprised that that was the number one thing, as you said, for eight consecutive years. Another thing, Rob, as you know, that's on a lot of people's minds is the test optional admissions talk, right? How many schools are test optional? Some in California now are test blind. Rob, are submitting test scores really optional? What do you think?
1: Oh, that's a good question, my friend. And the thing to me, and I'm gonna just say it out loud: I I still teach the SAT and the ACT. They are deeply flawed exams. I don't like them, (laughs) but they are still necessary in the process as they are flawed, but they are still necessary in the process. To answer your question, I do not think that testing is actually an option, because the truth is that you know if students apply to the traditional amount of schools like most students nationally will apply to between let's call it seven and nine schools and there might be some science kids might be applying to 10 or 11 who knows but but but, <laughs> but somewhere between seven and nine is the national average right but when we think about it if you're applying to all schools in california and they're ucs or cal states well then yes there are test blind or test free you'll never need the sat or act for academic admission but that still accounts for about say, let's call it nine percent of schools in the whole country hmm. are actually test free or test blind the vast majority are test optional, whether permanently or the mass majority are temporarily test optional. Still, four years into the pandemic, right? And uh, and the truth is that if a school, a school because they are test optional, John may not penalize a student for not submitting the score, but they can can cons- They may consider your SAT and ACT scores if you submit them. So to me, uh, I tell all of my students, you know, like take the tests if you. Scored well above the fifty percent mean that the school is reporting, then send them in. Why wouldn't you? And sure. then if you if you fall below it, right? I mean, you give the same advice. If you fall below it, then then withhold your scores. Exercise your test optional right to withhold them. But Absolutely. The truth is, yeah. If you don't do it, then you're going to get hobbled because you know ROTC requires the SAT or ACT. Um, so many schools that that have academic scholarships or other scholarship requirements, many of them. Are they SAT or ACT? So I'm like, how how could you not think about the importance of those flawed exams? But the truth is they are valuable in the process, not only for academic admission, but in large part for scholarship dollars as well. I'm yapping on here, but you, you totally get this.
0: No, I, I totally get it. And I totally agree with you. And the one thing that I want to add is just a reminder to everyone that the mid 50% range that you mentioned, yeah. okay, nowadays is skewed because oh. those numbers are based only on the students that are submitting their test scores. So obviously the numbers are gonna be higher than they were five, eight, 10 years ago. So it's something to keep in mind. And to your point, if you're on the higher end of that mid 50 or frankly higher, and you feel, wow, this is a great representation of who I am as a student, submit it. But again, Rob, to your point, if you fall lower, And you don't think that submitting that score is going to help your overall application, then you have the option not to submit in schools that are, in fact, test optional. The other thing that I always remind students to do is keep in mind that, for example, I think it was my conversation with the rep from Syracuse University that test optional. However, if you're applying to their nursing program, or I think it was engineering, you may have to submit test scores for the more competitive majors. So it's always important to check the individual colleges or universities website for the latest and greatest information. Now, Rob, speaking of test scores, you know more than anybody that there's a new digital SAT. In fact, you have a great publication related to it. So Rob, why did it change? And will it be easier or more difficult than that old Pencil and paper test.
1: Yeah, yeah the pencil and paper. Sell your stock, John, and number two pencils if you have any. You know, so College Board, who creates the SAT and the 38 AP exams, you know, made the decision January of 2022 that the SAT was now going to tectonically change from pencil and paper to digital. And the interesting thing to me is that they could have, College Board could have said, we're gonna change not only the platform, but we're also gonna change the content that was gonna be tested and they chose not to. And honestly, mm. listen, I'm not a huge College Board fan, but I will certainly give them accolades where I think it is due and that is one of them, right? You can't, I, in my opinion, it's hard to introduce so much change to a student in any one given year, right? So if you're gonna change the, the, the structure and the content, that's, that's difficult. Um, and it would be difficult for the College Board as well because they're saying that, listen, the content is going to remain eerily the same. The platform is changing. You know, we're working. You know this more than anybody, right? I mean, the idea of all students being digital natives, right? Mm-hmm. Pencil and paper feels so old school to them. If they want that, I mean, <laughs> really so so. Uh, and the and the truth is that the College Board has said, "Listen, we're changing this exam. It is going to be digital. We're going to save." nearly a full hour, you know, from a three hour exam to a two hour exam, really two hours and 14 minutes, not to split hairs. But, but the truth is that it's, <laughs> it's a huge saving from a testing perspective, from a teacher perspective, if you're saving a full 45 minutes that you don't have to focus, uh, I mean, because testing fatigue, you know this, John, is a real thing. But
0: sure, yeah, and it's, absolutely. So, so
1: now, I mean, so it's going to be a benefit to students to take that digital exam. The only rub, the only detractor is that it will now become an adaptive exam which I tell all of my students now, as every Princeton Review teacher does for the pencil and paper test. You know, listen, I'm like, look, you receive no extra points, no additional points for answering the toughest question on the SAT than you do the easiest question on the SAT. So the obvious strategy is, answer all the easy questions first and then spend (laughs) your extra time and focus on the hard questions. But the truth is that (laughs) that strategy kind of goes out the window with the digital exam because you have that flexibility, but you only have it in the small cohort of questions for each of those sections. So now you will be attributed additional question, additional points, pardon me, for the toughest questions on the SAT than you do on the easiest questions on the digital SAT. And that is the thing I just want my students to know, or students in general to know about, and their parents and counselors as well.
0: Well, that's great insight. And, you know, I always say that the students today, not people like you and me, Rob, that did take with the number two pencil, the pencil and paper test way back. And I'm not going to share my score with you right now. okay? but the point being is that the students today, they are natives of this thing that we call the digital language. They are really much more comfortable doing it digitally than people like us are. So I can appreciate that the SAT moved in that direction. And Rob, do you think anything will happen to the ACT as a result of the digital SAT shift?
1: You know, this was the talk of NACAC and you had mentioned that national association of college of Counselors. counselors. Um, sure. It was the talk of NACAC in the last conference, because the truth is that the ACT, you know, is actually, John, when you and I were looking at, so there was that there was a myth then, and it's a myth now, which was, only colleges on the left coast and the right coast of the United States honored the SAT, and every college in the great middle only took the ACT. And it was wrong then, and it's wrong now. But the truth is that the value of the uh, SAT and ACT from an admission perspective, like they're interchangeable tests, right? There shouldn't be a pox on your house if you submitted an ACT rather than an SAT. It doesn't matter. But but the ACT, eerily funny to me, is that right before the pandemic, NACAC 2019, they made this big announcement that in the next academic year, by September of 2020, that the ACT was going to be an online exam. As long as you took the first full-length ACT, you could then take one, two, or three single-section retests online, uh, right. and then right. you could increase your score in that way. Which was, to me, a benefit, a huge benefit to students, that if you wanted to improve your ACT score, you didn't have to sit for a three hour exam. Now you just had to sit for the 45 minute section. And it was a coup, but then factor in a global pandemic, ACT had to pull that option and it's never to be heard of again. Right. So Hmm. ACT, if history proves true, John, two things will happen. Right. When digital SAT comes in full in March of 2024, students will flock. To the act you know because the next right. exam in town which i could imagine act is waiting to collect those dollars um or they're going to kind of buckle down and say hey the digital exam you know college board might be kinder on me uh, because i'm the first <laughs> you know, marines in uh with the new test but we'll see what happens but one of those things will happen and, and but act right now has only alluded to an online or a digital exam but has not put anything concrete in place
0: Right. And Rob, I was wondering, because during some of my conversations with admissions representatives, they reported that a student might not submit an SAT or ACT test. This is, of course, if a school is test optional, but that they might submit AP scores for consideration. Emory was one of those schools that mentioned this during my conversation with the admissions rep. So what do you think accounts for the rise in popularity in the AP test? And do you think they will replace the SAT and ACT?
1: This is, to me, John, the trillion dollar question, and <laughs> and you know, as we talked about, College Board owns the S C T and owns the thirty eight AP exams, right? And uh, so the truth is that, and and you're right, Emory and some other schools like Emory are are grabbing onto this idea of test flexible. Which simply means, as you noted, if a student chooses not to submit the SAT or ACT, then they may submit another exam. And obviously, the best next exam will probably be an AP test. And College Board, I think, is banking on that to happen. And I think from a testing perspective, AP exams, well, you know this. I mean, AP exams are going to be testing your content knowledge of that academic discipline. Where the right. SAT or ACT, even in its digital incarnation, I tell all my students, the SAT doesn't test you how smart you are. It <laughs> tests you how well you're taking that test. That's it. But an AP biology test is going to test you on how smart you are in biology, certainly right. discipline centric, you know, uh, in, in that regard. So I do think that depending on how this rolls out with the digital SAT and what happens with ACT, you know, those exams still have not ratcheted back up to their pre-pandemic levels. Those tests are still not as popular. And for all the things that we've discussed, test optional being being the top of the list, but AP exams have become more valuable because of that shakiness around the SAT and the ACT. And I do I think it's going to continue? Oh, 100%. And, but then it becomes an access and an equity equity question, right? Because, you know, not every student has the same access to as many AP exams at one school and they would have, another, or as AP classes as they would at one school than, than another. And and that's a, obviously another issue, but uh, but it's a significant one, no doubt.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a significant one. And it's a typical question that I ask the admissions reps, which is, how do you account for one school that offers, let's say, 20 AP courses while another may only offer five or six. And of course, what they always talk about is that they look at the school profile and they are reviewing the student based on what is offered in their high school and whether or not they took advantage of what was offered to them. So I appreciate you mentioning that, Rob. And Rob, from your perspective, what are then the key components of a strong college application and are there any common mistakes that applicants should avoid?
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think Finding fit, and I talk to all of my students about this. And, and this sounds kind of hokey, a little bit, uh, John. But when I but when I talk to students, I talk them about finding fit. I'm like, listen, fit is four things, the way I define it. And and I tell all, and I speak in a lot of high schools, most every given evening across the country. I am somewhere in a, in a high school, <laughs> and uh, my, my 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 husband, who's right off camera, he's like, oh, I never see you. You never know. But 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 <laughs> I mean, I tell all of my all of those students and their parents. You know, listen. Fit is the most important thing. As we discussed at the beginning, choosing a school incorrectly it is an expensive venture, right? If you chose your school right. incorrectly, just the amount of not only the personal angst and anguish for you and your family, but it shakes your confidence. And then you might lose some dollars as well, right? I mean, you know, you know from a scholarship perspective, certainly. So when I, when I talk about fit, I talk about it so earnestly. Fit is four things. Obviously, an academic fit. You want to make sure you're engaged and challenged in the classroom. This is obvious. A campus culture fit. Maybe not so obvious to some students. Hmm. Do students at that school lean to the left or right politically? Maybe that's important. Maybe it's not. Uh, Are they religious at that school? Maybe that's important. Maybe Hmm. it's not. Um, Does diversity exist, which you can see through plain old statistics, but. Do diverse students actually interact with one another? Maybe you want to know, right. you know, um, hmm. are queer students accepted? Are the beds comfortable? Are the food good? Like, what, what is the food good? What are the things outside the classroom that also experience inside the, the classroom? But what, are your, what is going to be your full experience at that school, academically and otherwise? And to me, it is the again, the trillion-dollar question. Um, Next, financial aid fit, got to be a fit. You said this yourself, but talk about it now, because you're going (laughs) to avoid that conversation. If you're avoiding that conversation, even though it might feel well-intentioned, it's kind of just burying our heads, whereas we should have that conversation as a family or as a community now. And the last part of fit to me is a career service fit, that idea of not being apologetic about saying, Am I gonna get a great internship or a co-op or learning experience? And, and will that experience at that school, you know, loft me onto a job of substance upon graduation? And knowing that John, as part of your college research, Huh? Right. I mean, I w- could only have prayed that I would have. Wa- I could have I had that same conversation with my parents, you know, thirty years ago. But it. But I didn't. Like, I didn't. I didn't know. You know. Right. Now I talk to students about teaching them that process and that last part of career services never feel like it's taboo to talk about. Are students getting jobs upon graduation? Are they getting great internships while they're in school? And then having the conversation from there.
0: Well, those are great pieces of advice. And you talk about fit internship, research opportunities. I love that you added so many questions students to ask when you're on a tour, maybe of random students in terms of whatever it is that's important to you, whether it's political views, whether it's clubs and organizations, whatever it is that's important to you because students remember. There's over 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States alone. There is a school for everyone. Not every school, though, is necessarily for you. Just because mom and dad went to a school or your best friend is going to a school, you really got to see what the fit is for you. And I know that we have those lists. Rob, you know, you have great publications with some of the best colleges and universities in the country. But, for example, if there's a school that's in the top 20, but it's in a rural environment and you're a student that wants to be in the city in, in, in an urban environment, well, that school that's maybe number 15 on the list might not be for you. And it's the same thing. If you want to be in a rural environment, then you're not going to go to an urban environment, right? Do you want to be close to home, far from home? Do you want large, small, again, students? Finding that right fit for you, so important, so that you're going to be happy not only during your four years of college, but hopefully beyond if you continue with grad school. So we talked about financial fit a little bit as well, Rob. Yeah. So is college worth the investment, Rob?
1: Oh, God. I I, I can <laughs> never, you know, like, a you know, I'm the editor in chief of the Prince Review, I think you know my answer is gonna be yeah, of course it's worth it. <laughs> but but the truth is, you know, like, and, and I'm asked this question. I, funny enough, John, I've been asked that question more over the last, I'm gonna say, like five years than over the last 25 years that I've been working at Prince Review. So, and the truth is, college is worth it for any number of reasons, right? I, I think long quoted are these ideas of students who have a college degree will make now it's up to $2.2 million more over their career lifetime than a student that doesn't have a college degree. But then there's other studies in addition to that, which I believe in full, um, students that have a college degree report far, far lower percentages of unemployment throughout their career lifetime than a student Mm -hmm. without an undergraduate degree. They're more nimble in the professions and the regions and the globally, regionally as well, that, that students get to go into. Robert Wood Johnson did a study a few years back that said students that have a college degree will likely live longer than a student that doesn't wow. <laughs> have, because they will likely have better medical insurance throughout their career lifetime than mm-hmm. a student that doesn't. So, and those are the four that four things that I often go to when asked this question, because to me, it resonates with students, no matter their age group, students, parents, and counselors. And it does, again, underscore the value of a college degree. And, and uh, yeah, to me, it's just the best thing ever. And I don't, t- and I know you and I are the same. We don't tire talking about it. You know, it's, it's infinitely definitely. interesting.
0: <laughs> definitely. Definitely. And you know, somebody once said a very wise person, they said, yes, the cost of college is very expensive what's even more expensive is perhaps not having an education at all so you know you really can put value on you know a college education and i love how you talked about you know there's a study that based on those people that have a college education i guess because of health insurance and hopefully better jobs later on that they actually live longer that's something i didn't hear about rob but i appreciate you sharing so rob i was also curious how is ai artificial intelligence being used yeah. in college admissions. And do you have any insight at all on that? Yeah, I mean, there's been so
1: uh, much chatter, obviously, no matter the business vertical that, you know, last year at this time, it would have been hard to have this conversation around AI because we didn't know where it was gonna go. But the truth is it's going everywhere, right? So, so you know, <laughs> pick, pick your vertical, but the truth is admission is one of those verticals, right? And and I will just say out loud, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of AI stuff at Princeton Review, the one that I think is so interesting for our conversation is this idea of uh, you, we have an AI resource that helps you know give you feedback on your college essay. So it is, ama- and it, within seconds, you're getting feedback on your essay. Certainly not rewriting your essay because AI would also be able to identify the plagiarism in that. But but uh, but being able to give you substantive content as would any really good college counselor, uh, and I love that stuff. So I think that. To answer your question, I think that there are verticals that are going or products. Pardon me, around admission, like essay review, like the scattergram. On on, are you a Naviant school? I'm, I'm sorry. We're
0: we're a Naviance school, and the scattergram is amazing. I used it for both of my daughters. Oh, and now, think about <laughs>
1: adding AI to that. Well, now it's going to be right. You know that much more powerful. Now, w- whether whether you know scatter, you know uh, Naviance is going to do that or not. But I'm just saying that. Those types of those types of minutia of data points on products that we're using now is just going to be turned up to you know 11 on on the ability for our students to be able to use them. But they're not using them singularly. Right. These are family or community tools that we can use. And, and right. to me, that is of great value. There was a big article in the New York Times a couple of months ago talking about, you know, AI, and they had a lot of the NACAC, you know, regulars, many of whom I know have been on your shows, but they're like, listen, this is coming. We we don't have the opportunity. We don't have the luxury to not talk about it because that would be the death knell for us, right? We, we have to be right. able to discuss it with our students and put some margins in it for them because they're going to use it anyway. Let's use it in a way of, that's substantive rather than cheating, which I think everybody goes to when thinking about AI.
0: Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. And it reminds me when, I think it was back in 1998, when this thing called the Google search came out and everyone was freaking out like, oh my God, are people going to cheat? And I think, you know, here we are again with artificial intelligence. And I do think that college admissions reps, and we've talked about it in some of the episodes, I think they need to go a little bit more performance-based, probably be more personalized in terms of the essay prompts. And so It's going to be very interesting to see how AI changes the college application process as the years proceed. So, Rob, I was also curious, how does the Princeton Review assist students in finding the right colleges for them? And what advice do you have for students in navigating the college selection process? I know you gave us a lot, but what more could you share with us?
1: Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Well, I, I do a couple, I still write a couple, like my big boy job is editor-in-chief, so I'm responsible <laughs> across a lot of variables. I mean, a lot of verticals, but the truth is that, I mean, I still write some college guidebooks with a wonderful group of Princeton reviewers, but I think this idea, I, I write a book called The Best 389 Colleges and it comes out every August. So it might be- It's
0: a three. great book. I love it. I have oh, it.
1: it. <laughs> okay, cool, 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 cool. That's uh, that's great. Well, it's, a, it, I really love the idea of, asking current college students what their experiences are at their schools. And that idea of fit that we talked about before with those four different channels, um, that all comes from asking students, current college students, what their experiences are academically, campus culture, financial aid, career services, and many other things fit into those buckets because they're really big. But the truth is, that's the stuff. Like I say, I write this book with a team of folks, but the truth is, we're like channeling what we're hearing directly from. So this isn't my opinion. Like I, nobody should ever listen to me about what my opinion is <laughs> of a particular school. Because, but the truth is, I yield from an editorial perspective to what those current students are saying now. And I'm I'm in a unique position at Prince Review where we will get thousands and thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of surveys <laughs> per school, depending on the size of the school. So I'm I'm in a, a unique position to, to to receive a lot of those things, synthesize them down. Just something that's valuable for a college-bound student and their parent and their counselor so that they can have a conversation of fit. But that to me, uh, it, it would be tragically flawed to me, John, if a student didn't have access to current college student opinion. And, and now the truth is that students have access to, if, if students are listening to us, you know, assignments, <laughs> as much <laughs> as I hate to give them out, but if you're not following schools on social, um, that, that are on your list or, or maybe prospective schools. I'm not just talking about the admission office either, right? Following student groups, you know, where you're, you're now collecting primary source information from a school on a, on a device, on a platform that you're going to certainly know how to work better than I ever will. And, and now you're using it to figure out substance, and figuring out if that school is going to be a best fit for you based on that substance. So I think we're doing a really credible job there. But then I also think you gotta, you got to cross that stream with your own stuff that you're collecting from student opinion, too.
0: Well, I really appreciate that. And The Best 389 Colleges is definitely a great publication, particularly for a student that wants more information about a certain school. Obviously, there's 389 colleges in alphabetical order, and you get a lot of information, to your point straight from college students, which I think is so helpful. We also talk about the importance of visiting colleges. And of course, you sign in at the admissions office. There's the tour with someone who's trained to give you the best tour and show you the best places. Students, you owe it to yourself. Take an hour on campus and ask a random student on campus whatever it is that you want to know about. Tell me about housing. Is housing guaranteed for four years? Tell me about the social life on the weekend. Is it a commuter school or do people stay? Tell me about the professor to student ratio. And by the way, does it change from freshman year through senior year? I'm just throwing some random questions out there, but the point is, and Rob, you made it, very important to get insight. Not from me, for example, that went to college many, many years ago, but if you could get on campus, And talk directly with students that are there. I think it's great advice. And I love the work that you do with the Princeton Review where you're surveying, like you said, in many cases, thousands of students, depending on the size of the school. And you're giving their voice to potential students that want to maybe go to that college one day. So we really appreciate that, Rob. And this has been a phenomenal conversation. Before I get to my last question, Rob, is there a question I didn't ask or a topic that I didn't bring up today today? that you'd like to leave with us now?
1: No, I, you know, I think that we hit on a great number of things. You know, when I, when I think about, here's the thing, when I think about students going through the process and, and as we talked about, you know, like students applying to seven and nine schools, <laughs> I, I share with, you know, with many students that I talk to, um, the, the mistakes that I have seen my own students make. And, and, and I say this with great love. Them and their parents make these mistakes, but the truth is, and I'm sure this will never happen to any of your listeners, John. But applying to, let's say, applying to these, you know, nine schools on your list, but applying to those schools because your boyfriend or girlfriend goes, uh. to that school, yeah? or applying to that school because everybody from my high school tends to apply to that school, right? Or applying to that school because it's easy to get into. Mm. Or like the last thing to apply to school because it's hard to get into. You know, the the, the truth is that, you know, you're doing such an awesome job. All of these interviews and all of this amazing brain trust of folks that you're bringing in here. And that seven or nine schools that students are applying to, they should all be like a student should be delighted to go to any one of them. Because as you said, there's 4,000 four-year colleges in the U.S. alone. Hmm. We have the greatest luxury to be able to choose those seven or nine schools or whatever it is that we're applying to and truly be delighted to go to each of them and be able to articulate why. And to me, I think that's just the idea. Just to tell students again, that would be my last point. That was a real soapbox answer, John. (laughs) I'll shut up (laughs) about that (laughs) stuff.
0: No, I I think it's fantastic. And you mentioned students that apply to seven to nine. And of course, there's many others that apply somewhere around the 15 range. And... At the end of it all, Rob, you could only go to one, right? So it's important to do your research and, you know, certainly narrow it down and find that right fit. We spoke a lot about fit and so many other great things. And Rob, this has been amazing. It's such an honor to have you here. Unfortunately, it does lead us to the last question, which is what are your top three pieces of advice for students and their families getting ready for the college admissions process?
1: Oh, gosh. I, I, you know, to, to me... This process is a joy. You know, it should never be a burden. And and it can be challenging. I totally understand that. But if I'm giving one piece of advice to students and parents, I'm like, this, this is a joyful process. And and to get it working for you, to embrace, to literally bear hug the things that we were discussing today. You know, poke at taboos. As you said, talk to students. G- gather as much of that student information as possible. Because this, you know, people are going to ask you where you went to college Literally for the rest of your life, be able to make a confident and a clear decision based on your idea of fit. To me, that's the best advice that I could ever give to a student. And and, uh, and I mean it right down to my toes. I mean, this is the stuff I, 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 I live every day and I know we're both the same in that regard.
0: Well, those are great pieces of advice, Rob. And like I said earlier, the Princeton Review is so lucky to have you, as were Uh, we, on this conversation. And I'm really so happy, number one, because we met and you're just awesome, but also because I know that this conversation is going to help so many students and their parents as they navigate this process. So I do hope to have you again, Rob. You were awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Be well. Be well. And to everyone out there, good luck with the college search. Take care, everyone. Best wishes.